My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. another day as we continue through the Word of God and uh, we are looking at the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and we are continuing our journey uh, through this uh, most amazing sermon, Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, it's just really incredible and I hope you're enjoying it. If you haven't had a chance to go back and look at uh, previous uh, videos, please do that and and catch up and I've got playlists on my YouTube channel. Uh, Links are always in the description, description below to all my social links media, podcasts, the whole lot. We're getting into Matthew chapter 7 here and verse 1 of Matthew chapter 7. Jesus starts off with two very strong words. He says, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Jesus straight into a new topic. New topic. He just talked about don't worry. And now he says, now, let's move on to another idea here. Uh, He had primarily dealt with themes that were connected to the the inner inner spiritual life. You know, giving, prayer, fasting, materialism, anxiety, worry. Uh, Now he touches on a very important theme that's related to the way that we think about other people and the way that we treat other people. Remember, Jesus called for a righteousness that was greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 5. And in the way that some people think, the way to make yourself more righteous is to be more judgmental of other people. And Jesus here is rebuking that kind of thinking. And when he says, judge not that you be not judged, Jesus is issuing a command that's warning against passing judgment on other people. Because when you do so, you're going to be judged in a similar manner. Uh, David Guzik, among those who seem to know nothing of the Bible, This is the verse that seems to be most popular. Yet most of the people who quote this verse don't understand what Jesus said. They seem to think or hope that Jesus commanded a universal acceptance of any lifestyle or any teaching. But just a little later in this same sermon, Jesus commanded us to know ourselves and others by the fruit of their life. And some sort of assessment is necessary for that. The Christian is called to show unconditional love. But the Christian is not called to unconditional approval. We really can love people who do do things that should not be approved of. And I agree with that. So while this does not prohibit examining the lives of others and judging them by their fruit, it does prohibit doing so in the spirit of judgment. Uh, an example of an unjust judgment was the disciples' condemnation of the woman who came to anoint Jesus' feet with oil in Matthew chapter 26. They thought that she was wasting this precious oil. Jesus said she's done something good and that she would always be re- remembered for it. They had a very harsh and unjust judgment, but Jesus had a very different judgment. And that's the problem with when we judge people, we run the risk of getting it wrong. And you and I, we're not We're just not good at that because we base it on what we see and think. And the commandment to judge not lest you be judged is broken when we think the worst of other people. It's broken when we 
only speak to people about their faults. It's broken when we judge an entire life on, on somebody's moments of doing something wrong. We break it when we judge the hidden motives of other people. We, we break this command when we judge others without considering what we would do if we were in the same circumstances. We break this command when we judge other people without being mindful that we ourselves will be judged by God one day too. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. Jesus didn't prohibit the judgment of others. He just requires that our judgment be completely fair and that we only judge others by standard, that we are also going to be happy to be judged by ourselves. When our judgment in regard to others is wrong, then it's often not because we judge to according to a standard, but it's because we're hypocritical of the application of that standard in our own lives. We've ignored it. So we call out something in somebody else's life, but it's very present in our own. And Jesus says, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. This is the principle uh, that Jesus is, is building his command to judge not that you be not judged because God will measure unto us according to the same measure that we use for others. That's a very powerful motivation for us to be very generous with our love, generous with our forgiveness, generous with our goodness to others. If we want more of those things from God, then we have to give more of them to other people. And it's interesting because according to some of the teaching of the rabbis at Jesus' time, God had two measures that he used to judge people. One was the measure of justice and the other was the measure of mercy. Whichever measure you want God to use with you, then you should use that same measure with other people. Uh, we should only judge other people's behavior when we are mindful for the, of the fact that we ourselves will be judged. And, and we should really take into genuine consideration how we would want to be judged in the same circumstances. Verse 3. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? <laughs> I've always loved this. Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck? Let me remove the speck from your own eye. And look, a plank is in your own eye. And just walking around with a massive plank out of your eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The figures of a speck and a plank are not real figures. Obviously, they're used humorously by Jesus. Jesus had a sense of humor. Uh, and it shows how generally far more tolerant we are about our own sin in our own lives than we are to the sin in other people's lives. And there might be a literal speck in somebody's eye. That might be true. Uh, but Jesus used these exaggerated humorous pictures to make his message easy to understand and more memorable that even though there might be a literal speck in your brother's eye, there's obviously not going to be a massive plank hanging out of your eye. So he's exaggerating for the point of making... Uh, something so obvious to us. David Guzik, it is a humorous picture. A man with a plank in his eye trying to help a friend remove a speck from the friend's eye. You can't think of that picture without smiling or being amused by it. Which is, I must admit, you know, how did they receive it when Jesus said it? An example of looking for a speck in the eye of somebody else while ignoring the plank in one's own life would be when the religious leaders brought the woman who uh, was caught in the act of adultery to Jesus. And she had certainly sinned. She, she was committing adultery. But their sin was much worse and Jesus exposed it when he said, okay, well, he who's without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first in John 8. 
Jesus indicates that the one with the plank in his own eye would not be immediately aware of it. This is Jesus introducing us to the concept of blind spots. Somebody who has a plank in their own eye can't even see it or know that it's there. They're blind to their own obvious faults. And it's the attempt to correct the fault of somebody else, even when we have the same or a greater fault in our own lives that earns us the accusation from Jesus himself, hypocrite, actor, you're a fake, you're a phony. And our hypocrisy in these matters is almost always more evident to others than it ever is to ourselves. And we can find a way to ignore the plank in our own eyes. We're good at doing that, but others notice it immediately. Uh, A good example of this hypocrisy was David's reaction to Nathan's story about a man who had unjustly unjustly stole and killed another man's lamb. And David quickly condemns the man, but blind to his own sin, which was much greater. David had done much worse, but he gets angry at this guy. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Jesus did not say, by the way, that it's wrong for us to help our brother with the speck in his eye. Okay, It's a good thing to help your brother with the speck, but not before dealing with your plank first. This is the order of things. Verse 6. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. After he warned uh, warned us against judgmental attitudes um, and criticism that doesn't look at ourselves, Jesus here reminds us that he did not mean to imply that the people of his kingdom suspend all discernment. They must discern that there are some good, precious things that should not be given to those who will receive them with contempt. Now, you could say that Jesus means don't be judgmental, but don't throw out all of your discernment either. The dogs And the swine here are often understood as those who are hostile to the kingdom of God and the message that announces it. And our love for others must not be blind and it must not blind us to their hardened rejection of the good news of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. Yet we can also see this in the context of the previous words against hypocrites. It may be that in Jesus' mind, The dogs and the swine represent hypocritical, judgmental believers. These sinning hypocrites shouldn't be offered the pearls that belong to the community of the saints. Jesus also spoke in the context of correcting another brother or sister. Godly correction is a pearl, even though it might sting for a moment. And it must not be cast before swine, those who are determined not to receive it. See, our pearls of the precious gospel may only confuse those who do not believe, who are blinded to the truth by the God of this age, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul wrote, and may only expose the gospel to their ridicule. This is hard for us to wrap our head around this one. Matthew Poole, the gospel is to be preached to every creature, as spoken in Mark 16, verse 15. But when the Jews were hardened and spoke evil of that way before the multitude in Acts chapter 19, the apostles left and stopped preaching to them. Now, of course, 
Jesus did not say this to discourage us from sharing the gospel message. Previously, in this very same sermon, Jesus told us to make sure that our lights are shining before the world. Jesus said this to call us to discernment and encourage us to look for prepared hearts everywhere that we're looking. See which hearts are ready to receive. And when you find an open heart, trust that God has already been working in that person. Discernment is something that a lot of disciples never grow in because they use their own level of discernment instead of relying on the discernment that comes from the Holy Spirit, that conviction, that inner conviction of discernment. It's a voice you need to learn. And it's, it's like your own, your, your own voice. When you are a baby, you learn your parents' voice. It becomes the most recognizable voice to you. And so the voice of the Holy Spirit should be the most recognizable voice to us. Verse 8. For everyone who asks receives. Oh, sorry. Let me, let me read verse 7. Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock. It will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. There's a progressive intensity here from asking to seeking to knocking. And Jesus told us to have intensity, passion, and persistence in our prayer. And the fact that Jesus came back to the subject of prayer, which he's already dealt with in the sermon in verses 5 to 15 of Matthew 6, shows that Jesus considered prayer to be very important. And he gives us a three-fold description of prayer, asking, seeking, knocking. And you see the different aspects of prayer and, and what its reward can be. Prayer is like asking in that we simply make our requests be made known to God and everyone who asks receives. Receiving is the reward of asking. Prayer is like seeking in that we search after God and his word and his will and whoever seeks finds. So finding is the reward of seeking. And prayer is like knocking until the door is open. We we seek entrance into the great heavenly palace of our great king, David Guzik says, and entering through the open door into his palace is the reward of knocking and it's the best reward of all. Adam Clark says, ask with confidence and humility, seek with care and application, knock with earnestness and perseverance. Now the idea of knocking also implies that sometimes you sense resistance. After all, the door's already opened and there's no need to knock. Jesus encouraged us, even when you sense that the door is closed and you must knock, then do so and continue to do so and you will be answered. But the image of knocking also implies that there is a door that actually can be opened. Spurgeon, his doors are meant to open. They were made on purpose for entrance. And so the blessed gospel of God is made on purpose for you to enter into life and peace. It would be of no use to knock at a wall, but you may wisely knock at a door, for it is arranged for opening. Spurgeon goes on to say this, Any uneducated man can knock if that is all which is required of him. A man can knock though he may be no philosopher. A dumb man can knock. A blind man can knock. With a palsy's hand, a man may knock. The way to open heaven's gate is wonderfully simplified to those who are lowly enough to follow the Holy Spirit's guidance and ask, seek, and knock believingly. God has not provided a salvation which can only be understood by learned men, 
It is intended for the ignorant, the short-witted and the dying, as well as for others, and hence it must be as plain as knocking at a door. God promises an answer to anyone who diligently seeks him. Many of our passionless prayers are not answered for one very good reason, because it's almost as if we ask God to care about something that we don't care about ourselves. And God values persistence and passion in prayer because they show that we share his heart. It shows that we care about the things that he cares about. Persistent prayer does not overcome God's stubborn reluctance. It gives him glory. It expresses a dependence upon him. It aligns our heart even more with his heart. Verse 9. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he'll give him a serpent. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus made it clear that God doesn't have to be persuaded or appeased in prayer. He wants to give us not just bread, but even more than what we ask for. And thankfully, the times we ask for something as bad as a serpent without knowing it, like a loving parent, God mercifully spares us the just penalty of our ignorance. It's blasphemous to deny God's answer to the seeking heart. We then imply that God is worse than an evil man is. Instead, in comparison to even the best human father, how much more is God a good and loving father? Spurgeon said, how much more, says our Lord. And he does not say how much more, but leaves that to our own meditations. Verse 12. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The negative way of stating this command was known long before Jesus. So it had been said for a very long time. You should not do to your neighbor what you would not want him to do to you. But it's a different advance that Jesus puts it into a positive perspective to say that we should do unto others that which we want them to do unto us. And it's become known as the golden rule. And the golden rule was actually not invented by Jesus. It was found in many forms of uh, different settings and writings a long time before Jesus. But Jesus was the first person to ever phrase the golden rule in a positive way. He was the first person to say, not what you shouldn't do, but what you should do. So he flipped it around. I guess you could say he made the golden rule more golden. And this applies to Christian fellowship. If we experience love and we want to experience love, and we want to have people reach out to us, then we must love others and we must reach out to others. For this is the law and the prophets. Jesus shows that the simple principle, the golden rule, summarizes all the law and prophets say about how we should treat others. If we would simply treat others the way we would want to be treated, we would naturally obey all the law says about our relationships with other people. Spurgeon, oh, that all men acted on it. 
And there would be no slavery, no war, no swearing, no cussing, no cursing, no striking, no lying, no robbing, but all would be justice and love. What a kingdom is this which has such a law? And it makes the law easier to understand, but it doesn't make it easier to obey. No one's ever consistently done unto others as they would like others to do unto themselves. And this part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it ends here with Jesus starting off, judge not that you not be judged. And then he says, whatever you want men to do to you, do to them. So it starts off with judging. What's the intent of our heart and our mind? And then it ends with our actions. How are our actions reflective of how we want people to act towards us? That's the observation for me today. Stop judging. I've been saying for a while now, how about just you do you? Yeah, just you do you. I'll do me. You do you. Let God be God. See, if we just do that, and we do unto others, not based on judging them, not based on what we think about them, but based on how we want to be treated, then we'd have an opportunity to see how God wants to treat us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the goodness of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would just speak to us, encourage us, Lord. Allow us to continue to do more for others as we would have them do under us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day.